Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Well, thank you for joining us today here at Summit Church. Um, I gotta warn you, this is not a traditional Mother's Day message. This is not Proverbs 31. <laughs> um, we are, we're gonna start our series in the book of Romans today. And, um, and we're just gonna work through this. Now, I had an idea when we were laying out our series last year about maybe taking the entire year to do the book of Romans. And I gotta be honest with you, I was a little bit excited about that and I was a little bit nervous about that. Um, but I was thinking about, man, people are gonna be like, what, what part of Romans are we in? This is Romans part 47? It's like, that's correct. We're in Romans part 47. That's just one big sermon. Uh, so we may do that at some point, but for the next seven weeks, we're gonna be walking through the book of Romans together. And so what we're doing this weekend is we're gonna have kind of, um, kind of an, some background, and then I'm gonna lay the foundation for what we're gonna be doing over the next few weeks uh, because everything that we're gonna be sharing over the next few weeks is going to build off of the ideas we're gonna talk about today. Um, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was born in Tarsus. He was born Jewish uh, in a Jewish household, uh, but he was a Roman citizen. And so he was called Saul. That was his Jewish name growing up. Uh, until he had an experience with Jesus, that's when he started going by his Roman name, Paul. Um, he was raised as um, uh, a young man in Jewish tradition. He knew the law. Uh, he was religious authority, and he sought to snuff out Christianity. He felt like it was um, it was a, a cult. It was a sect of Judaism that needed to be squashed. And so he did his very best to make that happen. He actually, um, he actually was responsible for imprisoning Christians and indirectly having their lives taken. Um, so he was passionate about snuffing out Christianity until literally one day uh, he had an encounter with Jesus and it changed everything. Uh, it changed the trajectory of his life. It changed the, the direction. It also changed us because of what he did and what he would go on to do for the glory of God. Now, he wrote uh, a good portion of the New Testament. They were letters that were written to churches. And the letters that he wrote to churches were churches, for the most part, that he planted. Um, and he would go on these missionary journeys and he would go places and he would begin raising up a gospel community around Jesus and as he built up a church, uh, he would put someone in charge and then he would go on. And they didn't have the internet. They didn't have live streaming. And so people couldn't stay connected in ways like that. So he would write letters and he would write letters back to churches that he had planted or places that he had relationship. And he would instruct them and correct them and talk to them and catch up and just help them walk in relationship with Jesus. And so this is where we get a lot of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Now, Paul writes a letter to the Roman church, and the Roman church uh, was uh, an old church. Um, it had been around for quite a while, 
and it was made up of Jewish believers, so people that were raised Jewish and had converted to Christianity. They had said that Jesus is Lord, and so they maintained Jewish practices and principles many times, but they were believers. They were Messianic Jews, if you could say it that way. And the Roman church also had Gentile believers, people that were not Jewish, but had come to faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, they coexisted in a church that still observed many Jewish traditions and customs. Um, it still had a, 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 a very definite Jewish flavor to their worship. Um, and this is how things went for quite some time. Around 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius, he expelled the Jews from Rome. Um, and not just Jewish believers, but all Jews were expelled from Rome. And when that happened, these Jewish believers in this church were expelled. They were taken out of the picture. Now, they were gone for five years, around five years. When uh, Claudius died, when he passed away, the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. And when they came back, the church they came back to was very different than the one they left. Now, some of you guys took a break during COVID and you were gone for three months or six months, a year, whatever it was, there's no condemnation. But when you came back, there were some changes. Uh, we might've had a staff change or two, or maybe the, the, we painted, by the way, if you didn't notice, we painted about two years ago and we did that. But it's funny because people notice changes a lot of times. There was a few years ago, we changed the arrangements of seats in our auditorium um, to get more seats in the room. And I, I literally had a man leave the church because he, his seat was gone. It was like, no, your seat is still there. It's just rearranged. And he was like, well, my section's gone. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And he left over that. Like, okay, that's up to you. Sorry. Um, so if you can imagine coming back after five years and they, they get back to this church and many of the customs were gone. Many of the things they were used to were gone. The, the things that they enjoyed and liked, some of their preferences, all that was gone. And they were unhappy about it. They weren't thrilled with what they encountered. And uh, I don't know if you know this about church, but unhappy people can cause problems in a church. Did you know that? That didn't start in America, by the way. It started in the New Testament. And they came back and they were unhappy and trouble started and there were issues and there were problems and Paul recognized this. And this is one of the reasons why Paul writes the letter to Romans is Paul is, is writing to bring a divided church together. He's trying to bring people who think differently and value differently and wanna worship differently together and wants to unify them in one place. Now this is somewhat self-serving because Paul understands the strategic value of the Roman church. He understands that, that the Roman church is important because there's something beyond the Roman church. Paul had his sights set on Spain. He, he wanted to go west. He wanted the king to expand. He wanted to plant more churches. And he knew if we're gonna do this, the Roman church has to be healthy. The Roman church has to be strong because there's more beyond Rome. And this is such a great picture for us because we've got two locations. It's Indiana and Blairsville. But do you know what? I want Indiana to be healthy because there's more beyond Indiana. I want Blairsville to be healthy because there's more beyond Blairsville. So what are we doing? We're building up the church. We're strengthening the church. We're helping the church be as healthy as possible so that the church doesn't stop. The church expands. The church exceeds what we're planning even. 
and goes further. And this is what Paul's goal is. He's saying there is more to this than what we're currently doing. One of the themes we see in the book of, of Romans, and I don't want this to be condescending, but if you, if you dive into the theology, you can get lost sometimes. So I wanna make this as simple and as applicable as we can for us in our everyday life. So one of the major themes we see in the book of Romans is this idea that, that God judges sin, but manifests his mercy through Jesus. God judges sin, but manifests mercy through Jesus. Understand this, our God is loving and benevolent. He is gracious and merciful, but he is righteous and holy and he will judge sin. That is what he does. But he manifests mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. So we're gonna come back to this idea several times throughout this series. This is who God is, this is what he does. This is the theme of the book of Romans. We're gonna talk a lot about the righteousness of God. You're gonna hear a lot about that um, over the next few weeks. And when we talk about the righteousness of God, I wanna have a working definition for you so that we all understand, we all have one place that we can say, this is what we're talking about. So the working definition for righteousness is this. God always does what is right and he is faithful to keep his promises. He always does what is right. And you go, well, I gotta object to that. He doesn't always do what's right. I prayed one time and he didn't answer my prayer. I prayed healing and they weren't healed. Uh, you know, I, I wanted this to happen, it didn't happen. So God's not right, he hurt me. I am so sorry that you've been hurt, I hate that. God did not hurt you, okay? If you go back to our series we did in January, we talked about the holiness of God and that holiness is the core to God's identity. That is who he is and everything else flows out of his holiness, okay? Um, God's righteousness comes out of his holiness. Because God is holy, it makes him righteous. And because he is righteous, it means he always does what is right or good. It means he has no choice but to do what is right. It's not just a choice he makes, it is who he is. Because he is righteous, what he does is right. What he does is good. So he cannot, by definition, he cannot be wrong. <laughs> kind of like your wife. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm in so much trouble. It's Mother's Day. God, I can be wrong as I just was. But God cannot be wrong. He can't be. It's outside of his nature to be wrong or to be bad. He can't. Because of that, he's righteous. It, he's faithful to do what he said he'll do. Now, he is not like you and I. You and I will, will say things, we'll say, yeah, I'll do that, and somebody will say, you promise? Yeah, I promise. What they're saying is, I'm not positive I trust what you're saying. I need you to qualify it. I promise. When you were younger, you probably don't do this anymore, hopefully. But you, when you were younger, you'd say, I swear. And you go, pinky swear? I pinky swear. I can't imagine some of you grown men going, pinky swear at your job. You pinky swear? I'm gonna get that job done. You promise? Pinky promise? God doesn't have to do that, by the way. Do you know why God doesn't have to do that? Because he's righteous. By virtue of him saying it, it is a promise. He doesn't have to promise because he said it and he's righteous. 
So when he says something and we go, are you sure? Do you promise? That's us, that's not God. See, if you do a Google search of God's promises, it's gonna come up with all kinds of promises and some of them are specific promises or covenants that he made. Um, But everything God says is a promise. It's a de facto promise by virtue of him being righteous. That's who he is. So this is our working definition, that God is righteous. He always does what is right or good and he's faithful to keep his promise. As I said, this is not a Mother's Day message at all, but I think this is the word that God has for us this weekend. Romans chapter one, uh, Paul begins his introduction. He greets, he connects with, he's doing his salutations, and then when we get to verse 18, he gets right into this idea, into the meat of it. And he's addressing the church, he's addressing the, the church in general, but in hindsight, we see that he's talking more to um, the Gentile believers. And this is where we'll start in Romans 1, 18 today. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If I didn't tell you this wasn't a Mother's Day message, that would have told you right there, right? They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, eternal power, his divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing him. So what this is saying is, there is evidence for God in creation. So we should be able to look at the night sky and there should be something in us that says, there's more to this life than breathing in and out until I stop breathing in and out. If I look at creation, it should give me a clue that there is a creator. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or you've been to the Rocky Mountains or you've been wherever, these beautiful sights and you see it and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is so beautiful. There's evidence there that there's a creator. Now that is not enough to save us, but what that should do is is stir up in us a curiosity, a spiritual curiosity to say there is something more and that begins us on a journey in pursuit of Christ. But that's where we come in. That's where the gospel is so important for us to share the gospel with people, for us to send missionaries and ministry partners, for us to send teams all over the world, for you to walk across the street and share your faith with your neighbor, for you to to talk to your coworker on your lunch break and share the gospel with them because they might be on a journey of faith. They're looking for God. They just don't know that they're looking for him and they're waiting to hear the gospel from you because the evidence in nature won't save us. It's the gospel, hearing the gospel and having our hearts transformed is what saves us. But what he's saying is there's evidence in the world that there's a creator. He goes on to say this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. They ended up worshiping creation instead of the creator. And we'll come to that idea again in a moment. But it says they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or give thanks to him. I grew up um, in in a Pentecostal home 
Um, and the home, the church that I grew up in, um, I believed as a young man that uh, my salvation was very flimsy. It was easy to lose. I, I, now looking back, it was almost as if God wanted to keep me out of heaven and he was looking for reasons to keep me out of heaven. So like if I had a bad thought, it was like, oh gosh, God probably just erased my name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Like God's like, yep, I knew it, you're out. And then I'd pray a prayer of repentance and be like, okay, you're back in. Like, no, you're out again. Like that's how I felt. And maybe you didn't grow up in a, in a Pentecostal home, but maybe you grew up in a, in a Catholic house where there were mortal sins and you were constantly on edge because you felt maybe the same way that God was trying to keep you out of heaven. And, and I, I understand now that, that that belief was faulty. It was, I had a false idea of who God is. And so that, that caused me to think differently about who he was and what he would do because God's grace is much, 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 much bigger than that. Our God is not looking for reasons to keep us out of heaven. He's trying to help us get to heaven. Um, he, is, he is not ready to hit the ejector seat any moment, right? Uh, he is fighting for us. So I used to believe that I could lose my salvation just on a whim. If I had a wrong thought or bad idea or whatever it is, that it was gone. Um, but that's not the case at all. But I will say, I do believe that we can forfeit our salvation. I do believe we can walk away from relationship with Jesus. Um, one of the reasons I believe that is there is some scripture that support this idea. And when we see this in Romans chapter one, Paul uses the word know here, knew. And he says in verse 21, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God. And the word new here in the Greek is genosko, and it means to know, but it's, it's a word we've talked about in the past. It's the Jewish idiom for sex. So when they said they knew each other, what it means is they had physical relations with each other. And some of you right now that have your kids with you for Mother's Day are like, I did not know we were gonna go here on Mother's Day, Mel. Come on now. Just cover their ears, earmuffs, it'll be okay, right? So, um, in the Jewish understanding of, of physical intimacy, can I just say it like that? Is that more palatable? For the, the Jewish understanding of physical intimacy is that was, the, that was the ultimate intimacy, but it followed every other intimacy. So a husband and wife could know each other in the context of marriage, in the covenant marriage, only after they knew everything else. So that was the last thing to know about them, that, hey, now I know them physically as well. So at that point, you know them. You know them intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. You know them. And that is just a part of that. So now there's nothing left to know, if I can say it that way. Now we know that there's more. You grow in your relationship. You learn all those kind of things. But this is the idea that Jewish people had about sex. To know and this is the word Paul uses here. He said, they knew God. And this is an experiential knowledge. They knew God. They had experienced God. They had experienced God. But something happened. Well, they, they didn't worship him as God. They didn't give him thanks as God. And their hearts were darkened. Their minds were darkened. They begin to believe the wrong things about who God is. Maybe God's not good. Maybe God's not powerful. Maybe God can't do what he said he would do. Maybe this is a myth. Maybe I'm making this up. 
Why? Because our minds were darkened. We have the false idea about who God is. Because we knew him, we experienced him, but we really didn't know him. So I don't think we can lose our salvation, but I think we can experience God and walk away from that. He goes on to say in verse 24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. So this is a problem. There are lots of good things in our lives that God gives us, but they were never intended to be God. Your job is a good thing, but it should not be the ultimate thing. Your job is a good thing, but it's a terrible God. Money can be a good thing used for the right purposes. The, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not the root of evil. It's an inanimate object. Using money for the right things is a good thing. Money can be good, but it's a terrible God. But what happens is we make it ultimate and we make it a God. So just like they have taken created things and they've made it supreme and they're worshiping it as creator, that's not what we're supposed to do. See, worship is never to terminate on creation, but on the creator. Whenever you see a, a work of art, it's always supposed to go back to the artist. It's not just about the work of art, it's about the artist did such an incredible job with this piece of art. And yet, so many times, our worship falls on the creation rather than the creator. It goes on to say this, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Did I mention this is in a Mother's Day message? <laughs> Did I mention we have Kids Church available? You can check your kids in at any time. No problem. The people in Blairsville have no idea what's going on right now. I'm getting heckled by a two-year-old is what's happening. <laughs> Eight, they're correcting me. All right. So what do we see here? What do we see in these ideas? Well, we see that um, sin dominates us. We are dominated by sin. And Paul's saying this, he's saying, listen, um, sin takes control of our lives. Sin will take us where we don't wanna go. Sin will cause us to do things that we never thought we would do. And it's easy to look at the passage I just read and go, well, that's not me. I don't struggle with those kind of sins, so I'm good. But Paul didn't stop there. Paul didn't <laughs> end it there at all. In fact, you're not off the hook. In verse 28, it says this. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that, they should, that should never be done. Their lives became full of evil, every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, quarreling. Let me stop there for a second, quarreling. Do you know what he's saying when he says quarreling? He's talking about 
drama in the context of church. He's talking about people who stir up strife is the word that, that cause conflict among people. And he lists that right next to murder. He goes on to say deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. See, if you thought you were off the hook, we read this and we go, oh man, I'm not. That's me. This is what Paul's saying. We are all dominated by sin. We're all sinners. This is what we have in common. We all need a savior. And some of you right now are like, no, that's great, but I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I come to church regularly. And if I'm not here, I watch online. So I'm okay. You're, you're talking about the other people. You're not talking about me. Oh, Mel, I know you're not talking about me because I serve on the worship team. Oh, Mel, you can't be talking about me. I, I lead a small group. No, 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 Mel, no. You're, I, I give money to this place. So you're not talking about me. Well, Paul shifts gears and in chapter two, he starts addressing the Jewish believers. Listen to what he says. Verse 12. When the Gentiles sin, they'll be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by the law when they fail to obey it. Listen to what it says. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. This is what he would say to us. Coming to church does not make you right with God. Obeying the word of God makes us right with God. Watching a podcast or listening to a podcast doesn't make you right with God. Listening to Christian music doesn't make you right with God. Leading a small group doesn't make you right with God. Doing what God has said makes us right in his sight. It says even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own understand, or I'm sorry, for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim: that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. That should make us a little uneasy. The day is coming when God will judge our secret life. And again, what He's trying to illustrate to us is it's not just about what we do. And the, the front we put up, the part we play, where we act like everything's great and our life is good and I just love Jesus so much. God knows our heart. Our secret life will be judged by God. See, people judge the outside. They see what they see. They judge that. God judges our heart. He knows what's really going on. It's interesting because it says that the law is written on our hearts that even people who don't know the law, and he's talking about the Torah, he's talking about um, the first five books of the Old Testament, okay? Even if you don't know that, there is, the law of God is written on our heart. In, instinctively, there's something in us that, that 
We want to do what is right, even though our flesh fights against that. It says, no, we know what right and wrong is. Um, there's a lot of talk in our, in our nation right now in the news about abortion. Um, there's a statistics being thrown around that says the majority of Americans are pro-abortion. Um, and if you look at, there's a, a number, and th- these stats are a little deceiving. Uh, a 2018 Gallup poll said 60% of Americans are, are for a woman's right to choose abortion. But if you dig into the numbers and you get a little more specific, it's interesting because that same Gallup poll who polled the same people and asked them the question, they said, well, okay, 60% said yes. What about in the second trimester? The number goes from 60% to, to 28%. So as the pregnancy develops, people grow increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of abortion. And then you get to the third trimester and the number drops to 13%. Why, why would that change? Why would somebody who doesn't care in the first trimester care in the third trimester? And the answer is, we know what right is. It's written on our heart. It's just easier to pass off early in the pregnancy because we can go, well, it doesn't really look like a baby. But in the third trimester, it's a, it, you can see it's a human being and it makes it harder. And the reason is it's written on our heart. We know what right and wrong is. Nobody has to tell us this wasn't religious people that were polled. They didn't grow in their faith between the, the time they were asked these questions. What happened? They, they know. They know. And I want to be sensitive to this because stats say that one in three women are impacted by abortion. And so you might be one of those one in three. And I want you to know this. There's no condemnation for you. Our Heavenly Father is a, a good God. He's a good dad. And he's got nothing but mercy and grace for you. When we make a mistake and we come before our Heavenly Father with a repentant and contrite spirit, he will not resist us. So there's no condemnation, there's no shame, there's no guilt. But what I want you to understand is people know, they know what right and wrong is because it's written on our heart. Even if we haven't read the Bible, we know instinctively because we're God's craftsmanship, his handiwork. We are, we're his image bearers. So we know because it's written on our heart. Verse 17 says this, you who call yourself Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught the law or you've been taught his law. You're convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you, have, um, for you are certain that God's laws give you complete knowledge and truth. Now, this is a trap, by the way, because there are people that would be hearing this because when this letter was delivered, it was read publicly to the church. And there are people that are Jewish believers that are hearing this going, yep, that's right, that's right, that's right. I teach, so I'm good. I'm, I'm good, right? And then he shifts gears. 
Then he says this in verse 21. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. This is hard. He's saying, those of you that perpetrate a relationship with Jesus, but aren't authentic in that, you're causing more harm than you are good. He says the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better than the circumcised, uncircumcised Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. So um, circumcision in scripture is a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. And so it's a sign of the covenant between the people of Israel and God. And so being circumcised, especially uh, in this era, was a big deal because it was a physical sign on our bodies about who we were. And what Paul is saying is, hey, your body is marked, but your heart isn't. Your body's marked because you've been circumcised and you're proud of that, good for you. That doesn't mean anything though. What matters is your heart. This is what he goes on to say. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. It's interesting because chapter one, he says, sin dominates all of us. Some people go, but not me, I'm good. And then in chapter two, he says, yeah, sin dominates all of us. Not only does it dominate all of us, uh, being good or fulfilling the law will not, cannot save us. My morality cannot save me. My church attendance cannot save me. My service cannot save me. No matter how good I am, it is not good enough for God. Paul said, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our best day, when we're firing on all cylinders and everything is perfect and we're treating our wife great and our kids great and we love life and we did our prayer time and devotion and we're doing everything we're supposed to do, we still fall woefully short of God's best. So on our best day, we can't do it. And Paul shares this good news with the people. We get into chapter three and this is what he says in verse 19. Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law shows us how sinful we are. So the law is given, generally speaking, for our protection and the protection of others. Um, the, the law of God is given to facilitate relationship with God. We maintain these standards, we can have relationship with God in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But what Paul's saying is, if you wanna obey the law, if you think that is your pathway for salvation, if you think that's your pathway to God, you're in trouble because 
um, there's no way you can live a righteous life under the law that's good enough for God. And he said, really, in the face of the law, we realize how sinful we really are by trying to appease the law. I'll be honest with you. Um, the 10 commandments are tough, but the 635 laws in the Old Testament are really tough. And I can't even hardly roll out of bed in the morning without breaking some commandment or law. <laughs> you have a, a dream about somebody, you know, like they did you wrong and you wake up mad and I'm like, I can't believe they did that in my dream. It's like, they didn't even really do it, but, it, but I'm still mad. They have the capacity to do it. I saw it in my dream. <laughs> You're mad before you can get out of bed, Right? So the law illustrates to us how incapable we are of saving ourselves. And verse 21 says this, but now God. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the commandments or the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. But now, here's, here's what was going on. Here's the status of our world. We are dominated by sin. The law cannot save us. But now God, he's made a way through Christ Jesus. And you remember why he's writing this. He's trying to unite a divided, broken church. And he says, here's what unites us. Here's what brings us together. We are all broken. We all need a savior. All of us, even those of you who think you're righteous, you're not as righteous as you think you are. We all need God. And God has made a way. So no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what divides us, what brings us together, what unites us is Christ Jesus. God has made a way. Verse 23 says, for all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Why would he do that? I think we get a clue in this last verse. It says, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Remember what righteousness is. God always does what is right or good and he always keeps his promises. See, you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you surrendered your life to him, you and I are trophies, your demonstrations of the righteousness of God. People should be able to look at us and marvel at God's goodness at his promises when they see you and I. We should, we should 
be on display. We are demonstrations of his righteousness. We are trophies that he can display if we're authentic in our faith. See, people know the difference between phony and real. Man, they sniff it out, right? They see it. When we're authentic in our faith, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we have everything figured out. It just means we are on authentically pursuing Christ, that we have made him number one in our life, that, that he is our Lord. God demonstrates his righteousness through us. People see how good he is, how right he is, how faithful he is through you and I. Verse 27 says, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we fulfill the law. See, we don't throw out the Old Testament. The Old Testament's important, it's valuable. It gives us insight of who God is. But we also understand we can't do that unless we're empowered by God, by the Holy Spirit, to live a life that brings him glory. Sin has dominated us. The law cannot save us, but God wants to rescue us through Jesus. Remember what the theme is for, the, for this, this series. God judges sin, but manifests mercy through Jesus. God is righteous and he is holy and he is a judge, but he is merciful and loving and benevolent and he's willing to extend mercy to us. Right now, I'm gonna turn over to your host in Blairsville. They're gonna close out our time together. They're gonna give you a chance to respond. I love you guys more than you know and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. So today, pretty straightforward. I've been praying over the last few weeks for this series specifically that God would um, draw unbelievers, that people that don't know God would hear this message and shift, have a, a heart shift. Not from a clever presentation, but just because the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts. But I've also been praying, God, help people who maybe have been lulled into a false sense of security because they're connected to godly things. Just like the, the Roman Jews, they were lulled into a sense of security because they felt like, no, 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 I've got this. I was raised Jewish, I know the word. I, I can teach this stuff, I know it. Maybe you're like that, maybe you were raised in church, maybe you know all the ins and outs, you know the secret handshakes, you know all the stuff. Maybe you come to church regularly, 
But as we're talking today, you recognize, man, there is, there is a level of intimacy I do not have. And maybe you've recognized that, that you are pinning your hopes on your church attendance. You're pinning your hopes on going through growth track or doing any of these other things that, that we ask you to do. And this is what I want you to understand. The activity that we are involved in is a response to what Christ has done for us. It is never motivated because that's how we earn the love of Christ. That's, that's works-based faith. Our works don't save us. And so maybe, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you realize that it's really been more about what you do and earning the favor of God than being in relationship with God. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond. I wanna give you an opportunity to repent and say, God, I'm sorry that I've worshiped created things rather than the creator. I've put godly things in front of you because we can do that. My hope and my desire more than anything else is that we would be people who would be in real authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, that we would fall hopelessly in love with him and that that would be our motivation and our drive for everything else in our life. I don't wanna have, I don't wanna just have church. There's lots of places that we can just have church. We can get together and sing some songs and that's fine. Man, I wanna know Jesus. And, and as your pastor, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know him intimately. I don't want you to know some facts about him. I don't want you just to be able to show up and quote some things. I want you to know him. So that's my prayer. That's my hope for you. Why don't we pray together? Lord, thank you for loving us. God, I don't know why you love us like you do. We are broken and flawed and messed up. And we are in desperate need of a savior. God, I'm sorry for the times that I think my strength or goodness or ability or works are what saves me. I repent of that. God, I pray that I would be reminded daily that I am saved because of the atoning work of Christ because of what he's done. I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it. Remind me of that. Thank you for the gift of salvation we have. Thank you, not just for heaven, but thank you that we can know you and be in relationship with you, God. Help us not take that for granted. I pray that in this place, we would be people who know you. We wouldn't be people who just do good things, but change us and transform us, mold us into your image. I pray right now in this place for people who don't know you and aren't in a relationship with you, let today be the day we surrender it all. I pray for those that, that maybe have lulled themselves into a false sense of security, thinking that they're good, even though they're not really in relationship. Let today be a day of repentance and salvation for them as well. Have your way with us, God, in these next few moments. Be glorified in our time together. Lord, speak and move in ways that, that I can't draw or manipulate or, or coerce people into. Do the work that I can't do, God. Now, with nobody looking around, 
your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you'd say to me, Mel, I'm not really serving God. I'm not in relationship with God. I know I need to be though. I know I need a savior. I know that I'm dominated by sin. Maybe you're the person that says, Mel, um, I felt like maybe my works could save me. I felt like maybe being moral could save me. And I recognize now that that's not the answer. I need to be in authentic relationship with Jesus. If you meet either one of those two criteria, if you're either one of those people, I wanna give you a chance to respond. And I'm not gonna embarrass you. I just wanna pray with you. If you wanna be included in that prayer, would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? You put it right back down. If you say, Mel, include me in that prayer, that's me. Yeah, thank you. I see you on my right. Thank you, sir. I see you over there on my right. Yeah, thank you. Several hands on my left. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Just a few more seconds. Who else would say, Mel, include me in that prayer? That's me. Yeah, thank you. I see you up there. Thank you, sir. Praise the Lord. Yeah, thank you on my left. I see you up there. You can put your hand down. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. In the book of Romans, says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. So I wanna pray a prayer with you. I want you to say this with your mouth out loud, but I want you to pray it from your soul, from your heart to God. So I want every person in this place to pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. I repent of my sin. I turn away from my old life. And from this day forward, my life is yours. Use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause today, can't we? Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture says your new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we wanna help you take the next step in your faith journey because here's the thing. Um, when you meet Jesus, that is not the end of the relationship, it's the beginning of the relationship. There's still so much to learn and know and ways to grow in that relationship. So we wanna help you grow in that relationship with Christ. The simplest thing for you to do would be to fill out the card in the seat back in front of you and then take it to the info center when we finish here in a moment. They're gonna give you a new Bible and help you take the next step in your faith journey. If you're watching online and you're here in the room and you prefer, you can simply text Summit PA to 94,000 and then select the prompt that says salvation. Whether you're rededicating your life to Christ or maybe this is a first time decision, let us know about that. We're gonna help you take the next step as well. Um, here's what's gonna happen right now. Pastor Kendall's gonna lead us in a final song. We're gonna worship together one more time before we're dismissed. And then in just a moment, he'll close us out and uh, pray over us as you are dismissed. And while we're singing this final song, some of our prayer team is gonna join me here at the front of this room and we're available. We'd love to pray with you no matter what your need may be. And so during this final song, if you'd like someone to pray with you about whatever may be going on in your life, find one of our team, let them agree with you in prayer and believe with you before you head out. So why don't you stand your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today, guys. I tell you guys often, I hope you know I mean it. I love you more than you know, and I am so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you, and have a happy Mother's Day.